Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Jimmy Dore. Jimmy Dore is a comedian, commentator and host of the Jimmy Dore Show on YouTube. He's a popular, progressive, leftist, political YouTube pundit and he's a bloody good comedian. I really, really like him. Banter decanter. What have you been doing then? Scratching um, your own arm. You have done something. <laughs> what about dating? Oh, I went, uh, brought Harry Hawkins to watch the rugby in the pub because it was his birthday. Who we were Ireland playing? Was it yes. Six Nations? Versus Italy. You were <laughs> Harry Hawkins, or is it? So, yeah, what happened? Well, we watched it and we chat. I think he just wanted to talk about Russia and Ukraine to someone. Yeah? What did you say? We were like, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's good Jen brilliant he, he insights gave us, he gave us the ideas of how to blow up the tanks he's like I'd go here and here and I'd stop them yeah military strategy yeah. for Ukrainian generals yeah. you know that the <laughs> can I just tell you something important I know you don't know this do you know guess what the president of Ukraine used to do <laughs> cheesemonger <laughs> that's your actual guess yeah. you're guessing he's a cheesemonger <laughs> Why that? It's the first thing that came into my Why head. Why did cheesemonger come to your head? The universe. <laughs> Don't blame the universe for that. The universe is doing a damn difficult job and it doesn't... What did he do? Swimming, <laughs> swimming coach. <laughs> no, stop guessing. All right, I have one more guess. So if the first was cheesemonger, <laughs> then swimming coach. Now where are you going? Well, you seem to be amused by it. I am. I'm interested in seeing what jobs are at the forefront of your mind. I've moved on to a different... I can't even remember what Shopkeeper. I'm asking. No, no. What do you think this is? You think that the world's a 1980s British sitcom, don't you? Where people just yeah. do things like be cheesemongers. What did he do? He was a stand-up comedian, oh, Jen. I was going to say YouTuber. That's close. Might have been, but fact is... But does he tell... Never mind. Does he do what? <laughs> but does does he have humour in his Well, he speeches? does actually, yeah, because my friend Bruce told me that when he goes, when someone goes, do you need a lift? Like when Joe Biden offered to airlift him out of Ukraine or whatever because of the ons, Russian onslaught, he goes, I don't need a lift, I need ammo, which is sort of a joke, yeah. sort of pithy yeah. at least. That's and apparently there's someone sent me, Daniel Pinchbeck, former guest of the show, a video of him playing the piano with his genitals. I've not watched it. If someone says genitals... Yeah, why would he send... And no one cares. Ukrainians don't care about that. They like it, it, probably. Because, look, it's like Beppe Grillo in Italy. It's like Podemos. Are you taking it as a hint? Yes, finally. (laughs) What I'm saying is... You'd have to stay in the capital while it's being bombed and stuff. No problem. Really? What if I... I, Yeah, I'm probably terrified, but, I mean, that's what you've got to do. But you go at the front? It's what you've got to do. I'm not going to be one of them ones that's like in some palace sipping sherry. <laughs> sipping sherry? Yeah, I'm not going to sip sherry, Jen. Not when there's a war on. Okay. You've got to You're not going to freak out? Well, yeah, we'll freak out. I'm terrified of war. <laughs> Who's not terrified of war? That might happen here. It's terrifying. Yeah, but your area's in the nuclear destruction zone, isn't it? If London gets hit. Would you get to find time to do your research <laughs> on nuclear destruction? You think that your first job you think of is a cheesemonger. <laughs> You're studying the, the nuclear half-life sites of various bomb, yes. bomb targets. Yeah, someone, yeah. So you're not dating anyone, Jane. I almost could go on a date this weekend. Who with? This guy who I matched with on Hinge, and then we both disappeared because neither of us care. War. And then we matched again. Double and he's match. in Lowestoft. So what does that mean? It's just Plausible. weird that anyone is in Lowestoft. Well. 
Both of us are very laid back because it house takes about a week. House's jaw and chin. It's okay. He's got a nice chest. In what way? It's just nice. He, there's a lot of topless photos of him in swimming trunks. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's got long oh, hair. I noticed you had a little <laughs> swallow there, Jen. You had a little tr- You said the word trunks. And also you said swimming coach is one of your jobs. Is he a cheesemonger, Jen? No, no. He wears hats and interesting shirts, I think. We don't so talk. So do cheesemongers. Oh, do they? Oh, yeah, they wear hats to protect their <laughs> hair getting in the cheese. <laughs> they wear those netted hats that politicians oh. wear when they have to walk around a dairy or whatever. Oh. So go on. I might go on a date. Go, you might as well. What's the point? Yeah. Everything's falling apart. Get on a date. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Go somewhere. We'll go for a walk. Go. I Where think he likes going? running, so it'd be nice to have a running partner. It'd be lovely to have that. Not as a first date, though, Jen. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not as a, you don't sprint on a first date. You'd have to stand. Maybe, I guess he wants to go to the pub. Go to the pub? What else are you going to do? Something to eat. Apparently men don't like eating on the first date. Why? Because they're embarrassed about the way they eat. A lot of men are shovelers, aren't they? They're shovelers, ugh. Yeah. Hmm. They don't want a woman to see what they're really see like. See the shuffling. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> could you look away for a moment? I've heard that. That's what I've heard. Eating's too much pressure on the first date. I've always thought first date is a standard. Meal is a standard. Well, did you go on a lot of first dates? Yeah. I only first dates. <laughs> were you trying to... Um, did you wine and dine in an impressive way? Sometimes it was necessary. <laughs> what do you mean necessary? <laughs> well, sometimes yeah. that's just, you've got to pull out the big guns. Do some people do you know that they need a full dinner? And some people are happy with a drink. Yeah, some people would just pop round me, yeah? <laughs> like it's more like that. Yeah. Like that's the dating game, isn't it? I'm just sure it's almost like, I mean, I'm out of the game, of course. But when I was in the dating game... Pop round. Pop round. If you, would you pop round? <laughs> the, 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 that, I think, happened a lot in COVID, is my guess. That The pop round got a real boost. Yeah, probably. Because you can't go out, so pop round. You're not meant to be meeting at all, but you are, yeah, because yeah. you're a young person and you've got well, libidinous. Well, did you do any lockdown no. dating? Nope. Did you sit on the pebbly beach this is of Lowestoft? Yeah, I did, and had some guy drinking white lightning on the cliff behind me. Did you have a second date with him? <laughs> <laughs> Listen to shout outs. Francois Gouguin. Gouguin. I've been enjoying Russell's podcast very much since I came across him. It allowed me to discover the work of Vandana Shiva, which has been a real eye-opener for me. Keep up the great work. I'm so impressed and admiring of the way you've evolved since I first came across you as the Big Brother host, a program I was so keen on. You're an inspiration. Thank you. That's when you and I first... Well, I don't think we met, Jen, but I think I became aware that... uh, a young lass, a, a girl, let's say, because you were not yet a woman because you were 15. No. No. A girl in Ireland is running a fan site. Yeah. Jenny Mae Finn. A chat room. We used to watch Big Brother. Big Didn't really watch Big Brother. Wasn't allowed to. No? <laughs> no. You used to watch the chat because sometimes they would My mum said it, you're not allowed to watch that. I don't know how she could say that to a 15-year-old, but I was very obedient. She should have let that slide. I wasn't allowed to watch MTV either. Really? You were seeing all my content. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't there to watch anything that you were on. It's a miracle you found your way to the adulation, Jingo. Well. It's a miracle, <laughs> Jen. Cheesemonger. Natalie Storbacher 
Kovunen. I'm a huge fan of yours ever since my teens when I learned English. This is people that are really citing the, the history of their affection. I've been listening to your podcast since it started and you've had on many guests who I've, thanks to you, been inspired to follow and then received life-changing advice from. Sending you love from Finland. Yeah, I'm sending you love in Finland, mate. Thank you for that. That was really lovely. If you've not been and seen me on tour yet, you have to come. It's uh, Come and see me like in Sheffield or Scarborough. That's coming up right soon. Or Liverpool. And then there's big shows in Bristol and Blackpool is going to be an extravaganza where I'm going to do breath work and meditation. Go to russellbrand.com to get your tickets now. Also, if you're not a member of my mailing list yet, just go to russellbrand.com and sign up for that as well. And keep watching my videos. They're doing incredibly well. I'm very pleased with them. They're sensational. Get over there and have a look. Now, another great YouTuber, and I'm not saying I am, I suppose I was by inference saying I was a great YouTuber, but Jimmy Doyle is without question a great YouTuber. Let's listen to his amusing, forthright, passionate opinions. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Jimmy Dore, it'd be a miracle if you and I can find any common ground with me being so far right wing and you, as I've seen from a list now, it's always a good time when people start drawing up lists. Uh, <laughs> you, you, of course, are on, on, the, on, the, on the left. Thanks for agreeing to join us. I'm on the dirtbag left. Don't forget that. I was uh, put on a, pay, a cover of Newsweek as the leader of the dirtbag left. So I, I enjoy that moniker. What's going on, Jimmy? What's going on? What What's happening with all, all of these new categories and condemnations? What do you think's happening? It's the same old thing. If people on the left and the right realize that they have a common enemy, if they realize that they have shared interests and they come together to work for those interests, that scares the hell out of the establishment. So they have to stop that as with, with all by any means necessary. You're seeing what they're doing to Joe Rogan. Uh, I've it, it happened to me personally. Look what they do to Glenn Greenwald. They try to pretend that you're right wing. So anybody who actually stands up for the people uh, is going to be called uh, names, discredited called right wing look what they're talking look what they're saying about farmers and truckers in canada look what they're saying about those people we want you to organize not like that not like that don't actually actually do something where you actually have power don't actually occupy a city uh, and you actually control it don't don't do that we want you to organize but in a way that we can easily dismiss and not and so just like when we did medicare for all march we had a medicare for all um uh, marches in every city in 50 major cities in the United States last summer didn't get covered by the media. None of the Democratic politicians show up and half the people who say they claim to support Medicare for all in the United States did not show up, including the nurses union. So uh, I don't think there's really a left anymore in the United States for any 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 way. And if you ever do stand up against the oligarchs and unite with other workers, uh, they will try to discredit you and squash you. And that's exactly what happens every time. Uh, you know, when people say they want to organize, right? People always love that's a big buzzword in the United States around lefties. Organize, you have to, have to organize. And yeah, we did organize. We got the squad elected. We got AOC elected, Pramila Jayapal, Ro Connell. We got all these people elected, Cori Bush, and now they're not doing anything. So they keep telling you, just go back and keep organizing. And what they don't realize is when they say organize along class lines, 
So what is organizer? I've been in unions my whole life. I know what organizing around class lines means. And here's what it doesn't mean. You don't go to the fl shop floor and go, who here is a libertarian? You're out. Who here is a Trumper? You're out. Who here is a Boogaloo boy? You're out. Who here is a Proud Boy? You're out. Okay, now we're going to organize with who's ever left. That is not how organizing works. They know that's not how organizing works. And so when people actually do do actual organizing and they connect with people, People on both sides of the aisle around common interests that's the scariest thing to them oh. <laughs> thanks you've actually answered it okay <laughs> literally that is the <laughs> that's literally the experience when you say you, um, forgive me for not knowing because i'm a fan of your uh, youtube stuff um and uh I, I love what you do on your channel and how you communicate. I, I really do. And I also saw it when you had Glenn Greenwald on and you stuck up for me. And I appreciate that as well. Thank you. And I'll just, um, I, I was sticking up. I was sticking up for everybody. Uh, you know, it, that doesn't matter. It's about the principle. You know, I defend Alex Jones's right to freedom of speech. I defend yours. I defend Joe Rogan's. I defend Glenn Greenwald's Julian Assange, most importantly. Yeah. And those, those are the people that the establishment don't want us uh, to defend their freedom of speech. And so, and right back at you, I'm a big fan of your show. I'm very jealous of your popularity. <laughs> I was talking to my YouTube liaison and I said to him, I said, hey, you know, I know we're being suppressed. How, look at Russell Brand. Look at all the views he's getting. And we're talking about the same things and he's killing it. And the guy says to me, Jimmy, Russell Brand's a huge star with millions of followers. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. That's right. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, that, that, that at least, that, that remnant and significant part of me that is still egoic really, really appreciates that. I, um, Jimmy, there's loads of things I want to ask you about, but like, it's something you just touched upon in your response there, that it's not about any particular person. It's about a set of values and principles. This migration of principles is something that we're, um, you know, the, the easy dismissal of an, a principle is something that I'm noticing again and again, that people will say, this is what we believe in oh but not in this instance you know one when we've been doing videos for example around uh, around mandates one of the things i've continually said and have been careful to say because i'm aware of the kind of restrictions that exist or even around conversation in this area is try to forget for a moment what the subject is just think about the principle the principle of freedom and autonomy if we put them aside at this moment we don't know where else it might may be applied even if you agree in this instance with the subject you know like say with the truckers you know like what's do you think this speaks to a deeper theme of a kind of cultural nihilism that people don't have any real values or our media don't have any real values or the values that they do have are so dominated by the pursuit of profit and the pre-existing relationships between government big business and media that everything is a kind of posture and nothing is real nothing has any sort of meat on its bones oh that's exactly right they of course they, they everyone pretends to care about the right things. That's what virtue signaling is all about. You virtue signal. That's why, you know, I have a joke in my act where I say, uh, you know, if it was 1860, the Democrats would be bragging about their first transgendered slave owner. So what they do is they're using these virtuous signals, these things 
like identity politics, not to help minorities or workers or poor people. They use it to keep them stuck exactly where they are and out of uh, uh, any kind of economic prosperity. So what they'll do is instead of having a white guy oppress you, they'll have a black transgendered person uh, oppress you or Pete Buttigieg, who's gay, oppress you or Rachel Maddow uh, feed you five years of unbelievable red baiting conspiracy theories that were evidence free to the point where they red baited every one of their political adversaries. So that's what or the, or they'll get someone like Chris Hayes, who has a show, who's a nerd. They're like, he would never lie to you. He's a nerd. So these are the people. Uh, this is what they use uh, to keep everybody where they are and to keep people out of economic progress is they use identity politics and we're living in it right now. I mean, uh, you, you don't that that means virtue signaling means way more than substance. I just saw uh, Nancy Pelosi has a uh, she's running for re-election and you know why she's doing it she's not doing it because she's a, a megalomaniac narcissist who can't let go of power and privilege or an insider trading by the way no she's doing it for the kids she's doing it for the kids russell and if there's no one who cares more about kids than 81 year old millionaires I happen to know that she cares mostly about her kids. Her and her husband's kids uh, are Apple and uh, Facebook (laughs) (laughs) and Slack. Um, Yeah. I, this is yeah. This it's interesting because obviously the way that the information is presented, as you've just said, Jimmy, is an indication that the that they understand what real values are, and the only time that these principles are vehemently denied and not adhered to is when it actually might change something. So, like now, do you have the same? Because I was in. I'm not offended by being sort of called part of the right. I know a lot of people that watch my stuff are from the right because I read the comments. I assume it's the same from you, and I do look at the comments on your stuff. Loads of people uh, watch yes. my channel, love your channel, and say, oh, you know, Jimmy Doyle's amazing. You should watch Jimmy Doyle's video on this. And, you know what I mean? I get lo- like loads of that. The people seem to recognize that we're similar or at least interested in similar ideas. Um, like So, Jimmy, do you... Uh, do you feel that that, that um, are you concerned that so much territory has been ceded that populism is becoming automatically associated with a class of politics that previously was aligned with the interests of big business? I mean, sort of conservatism, republicanism. And what does that tell us about the left? And do you think that something can emerge from this movement? Or do you think, as you sort of already said, that the priority is for us to ignore that, ignore those kind of criteria? Well, the Democrats in the United States, there's, you know, we really only have two major parties and the Democrats are supposed to look out for workers. They don't. Uh, in fact, when, when Hillary Clinton was running against Donald Trump the first time uh, or the only time they ran against each other, uh, Chuck Schumer, who was the leader of the Democrats in the Senate, famously said at a press conference, he didn't say this privately, he said it out in the open, no one who wasn't trying to hide it. They were making the case that, hey, you, the Democrats aren't appealing to blue collar workers anymore. And he said, don't worry about it. For every blue collar worker we lose in Pennsylvania, we're going to pick up two white collar suburban voters in Illinois, in Ohio and Wisconsin. And so they were he's literally admitting, yeah, we don't want to represent blue collar workers anymore. We're in bed with the white collar college educated elites, which has normally been a Republican 
uh, constituencies. So they so no one's representing them and people workers are gravitating towards Republicans, people like Donald Trump, because they got nowhere else to go. People didn't vote for a game show host because they were thrilled to do so. People did that because they were desperate and they couldn't trust the system anymore. The oligarchical system. We had just elected a black guy with a Muslim name in response to George Bush. They gave him a peace prize on his first day in office and he immediately ramped up the war in Afghanistan, started bombing Libya, put a hit on Osama bin Laden, dropped 20. 30,000 bombs in Syria. And uh, boy, that's the thing about those peace prizes. Huh? Nobody ever tries to win a second one. He then went on. He then went on to create uh, to deport more Hispanics than all the presidents combined since 1890. Barack Obama did that. Barack Obama built those cages that they were putting immigrant kids in that they claimed that Donald Trump built. He didn't. Those were built by them. Donald Trump uh, deported way less Hispanics than Barack Obama and uh, Joe Biden. Plus, Barack Obama kicked 5.1 million families out of their homes in a similar economic crisis in 2009. Okay, so the, uh, uh, black people's income went down. The income disparity exploded. Barack Obama gave us a right-wing health care plan that was a giveaway to help, uh, big pharma and the big health insurance companies. He didn't give us a public option, and he didn't give us Medicare for all. So if you voted for uh, John, McCain or Romney, you would have got almost the exact same government we got under Barack Obama. So that's why people are voted for Donald Trump the first time and why half the hundred million people don't vote in America. The biggest voting block are people who don't vote. The second biggest voting block are people who call themselves independents who aren't affiliated with either of them. The smallest voting block in the country are Democrats and Republicans, and that's the way they like it. So just a few handful of people come out and decide our elections instead of the biggest majority. And that's what they want. I mean, of course, they want us to both. They want to suppress the vote. And that's exactly what's happening. And they don't want you to be understand what's so people don't get that uh, e even uh, people like Noam Chomsky these days have forgotten. He wrote a book called Manufacturing Consent and that the establishment media is there to do just that manufacture consent. So this idea that there's uh, that one that Fox News is worse than CNN is worse than MSNBC is ridiculous. But they all serve the same people and they're all telling just as big a lies, just different ones at any given time. It's so crazy, Jimmy, because, you know, you're uh, bringing up Chomsky there. It's Chomsky that first said that, the, that what's required is lively debate within narrow parameters and in all areas where both parties agree you effectively have no choice at all. And the situation that you described where what are considered to be the shameful abandoning of ordinary working people by apparently left-wing parties. I don't know how much you know about British politics, but our politics sort of responded to yours. You had Clinton, we got Blair. And and the way that like you know I have understood or it's been explained to me by Matt Taibbi that the Democrats altered their their um, policy around funding and the acceptance of money in the mid 80s in order to facilitate growth and campaign power in the the United Kingdom the Labour Party abandoned their historic clause four which meant that they gave a certain number of votes to the unions they got rid of that and it meant that the the essentially well Labour became electable with the uh, prefix the telling prefix new Labour like new coke. And like then Labour rose to prominence, and but but like and, and Margaret Thatcher, the great right wing uh, uh, conservative leader, when asked what is your greatest achievement, she said Tony Blair <laughs> was her greatest achievement. So we had a similar, we have a, a similar thing. And for in terms of the rise of you know populism and what might be considered and certainly is labelled as a kind of ethno nationalist populism, but for the reasons you've already described in our conversation, those that description of it is needlessly. 
uh, pejorative and what's that word I learned just the other day? Dysphemistic, the opposite of a euphemism where you deliberately use something to make something sound worse, whereas a euphemism makes something sound a bit better. I learned it the other day. Dysphemistic is like that you know obviously it's because of the abandonment of working people rather than some inherent racial stuff that's going on that if you highlight oh they're racist they're prejudiced then it, it, we're able to dismiss their views on a, a, a on that basis so like for us we had brexit where you had trump that was that you know that was our moment and i i, and I remember feeling like like when reading in the media that i as a celebrity I sort of felt like oh this is what i'm supposed to be a part of this sort of legacy media you know when i'm doing flash interviews and covers and all that kind of stuff i felt like um, you know when i know when i started to talk about politics their condemnation of me was the most the, the apparent left were the most vicious and vindictive and patronizing and pious and the way that they spoke about it was like brexit voters was like like, like i started to realize you lot hate working people you hate yes. them like yes. I had that realization, and so in spite of our, you know, having you know, coming from sort of different countries, there's clear global parallels occurring that like are sort of interconnected and presumably part of a wider narrative. Well, it's funny to see uh, Justin Trudeau talking about the truckers uh, protesting against uh, mandates. Uh, the the verbiage he used, I, I think I'm going to get correct. I hope I don't, but. Uh, I think he said they hold unacceptable views. They hold on Like we're not even talking to them. We don't even care. We don't, I don't want to hear your concerns. I don't want to hear your problems. I don't want to hear your redress of government. Uh, Cause that's it. I don't care about you or your that's. And they try to make it out to seem like they're a fringe group. There was 20% of the truckers is what I've read. Now that's not 1% would be a fringe group. 0.1% would be a fringe group. I'll even give you 5% would be a fringe group. 20% of truckers who I've now been joined by farmers are not a fringe group. You want to dismiss them as a fringe group because they now actually have figured out a way to protest their government that makes a difference. They found a way to shut down capitalism temporarily to get their point across. And that's why they have to dismiss them that way. And of course they hate the workers. The, the head of the, de the leader of the Democrats in 2016 said, we don't give a shit about the workers. I don't care. We're, we, we want white collar people to vote for us. Who cares about the workers? Let them go vote for Trump. That's their sentiment that's how they feel and so that's why we're living in the uh the times that we're living in right now and it's everything that comes from establishment media is set in uh, the prism of left right trumper or not trumper everything they're doing this with the there's a protest happening in another country they're framing it as the trumpers they're doing that in the united states no matter what happens so it's either you're with us or against us constantly and i'm not doing that i'm telling people during covid don't turn on your neighbor over vaccinations turn on the establishment in the united states they did a study over two hundred thousand people would still be alive who died from covid if we had medicare for all they never mentioned that who do they want you to be angry at they wanted to be angry at uh, uh, your neighbor, a nurse's aide, or a teacher, or a or a student, or a, a truck driver. That's who they want you to be angry at. And I'm reminding people, that's a trick. 
to get you to hate your neighbor. Your neighbor and you have the same problems. We've all been crushed. They all have been crushed by the lockdowns and this oligarchy who in the beginning of uh, COVID in the United States, they all got together in Congress and they passed a, a, a vote, the CARES Act, which what did that do? That was the largest upward transfer of wealth in history and gave us nothing. And every Democrat, including Bernie Sanders, signed off on that garbage. Why? Because we live in a one party oligarchy. There are no two parties. This is a, a, a and I've been trying to tell people in the United States, if you care about progress, if you care about progressive politics, you have to stop donating and you have to stop voting for Democrats. I know that sounds crazy, but that's the only thing that's going to work. And you know how I know that's going to work is because bought and paid for establishment mouthpiece manufacturer of consent, Lawrence O'Donnell, who hosts a show on MSNBC, said this before he had a show on MSNBC when he thought nobody was looking. He said the only way you can get a party to move to whichever part you go, if you want the Democrats to move left, you have to show them that you're willing to not vote for them. He said, I'm he goes, I know this for a fact. He was the head of of a, a senator who ran the Senate, and he said, I never had to listen to people who are on the left because they have nowhere else to go. And so I've been trying to tell people in the United States who consider themselves progressives or lefties, you have to withhold your vote from the Democratic Party for at least one election cycle, and then you'll have real power. That's how you get power. That's the only power you have. They don't care about us or our vote. That's why they gave us Joe Biden, who was a worse candidate than Hillary Clinton. He was. He's an actual racist. He's an actual enemy of the working class and he's an actual maniac war criminal he's a not 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 that's not hyperbole and so that's who they gave us someone worse than hillary clinton and so if we're not willing to do that our country's going to keep getting worse people don't want to hear that just like they don't want to hear that everybody no matter how many masks or vaccines they take is going to likely get Omicron, which is COVID. So this idea that we're turning on our neighbors over a disease or a virus that everyone's going to get no matter what, and this the, and that the establishment has been wrong, the CDC and Fauci have not only been wrong, but lying. And we've documented their lies here. So I don't remember exactly what the question is, but my answer is always keep your eye on the oligarchs and don't fall for the bait to blame your neighbor for your misery, because it's not your misery. Don't blame an immigrant. You know, if, an, if somebody gave you your job to an immigrant, you know who did that? That's a capitalist who found somebody in a more desperate situation than you are, and he can now exploit them harder. So it's not that person who's your enemy. Your enemy is global capitalism. Like when you said, mate, about the truckers, that when there is no democratic method by which you can express yourself because of the single state oligarchy that is ubiquitous in Anglophonic and Western late capitalist cultures, find a new method through protest. That protest has to be delegitimized in order to nullify its impact. The democratic process is nullified. The protest, the, the protest movement is nullified. The media won't speak or provide a voice for these movements movements. I'm reminded too when you say about the turn on your neighbours for what are um, I would say issues that ought not be determinate uh, of Vandana Shiva when she came on the podcast talked about how it's always been the uh, imperative of colonial powers to create a divide and conquer dynamic and it's something that the British were excellent at when conquering territories of India and something that abides still through the you know the 
ongoing uh, policies of big agriculture and all of that kind of stuff. Also, though, um, sort of formulating this into something of a question, because last time it wasn't a question I even gave you. It was a series of announcements, which you very kindly turned into a five-minute response. And I appreciate that. I'll tell you that much. Um, that when Crystal Ball off at Breaking Points came on, I like asked her, like, look, what are we, like, you know, why are we trying to inhabit the Democrat Party with meaning and, uh, and purpose when it's evident they ain't going to do anything? Do do you believe it's possible? Now you know you just said, suggested in you know at least withhold your vote for one cycle. Do you feel that there is a requirement for a new trans ideological political movement that is explicitly about economics and about improving the rights for ordinary Americans? Do you think it would work in your country? Do you think it would work elsewhere? Or do you have any optimism that the Democrats could change, even like, you know, even though after what you've said about Biden and what we know about how they treated Bernie and they made the Trump, they they preferred Trump over Bernie is, the, you know, the fact of the matter. So like, um, like you know, wh where would, um, where do you stand on that? Can the, can the Democrat party be, be revived or do you think there needs to be a new movement? Well, uh, People have been advocating for Crystal Ball's point of view since 1980, and where has it gotten us? It got us from Bill Clinton, who deregulated Wall Street, crashed our economy within 10 years. Bill Clinton, who uh, exploded the po prison population while gutting welfare. These are the things, and then it got then it got us who it got us Barack Obama, who did all those things I just told you he did, and that gave us what that gave us Donald Trump. This is an obvious, fa and then we got uh, the 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 Justice Democrats which was uh, the idea was that we're going to we're going to elect a bunch of people who don't take corporate money so then they can fight back inside the Democratic Party against the Democratic machine. Well, that's an unbelievably failed experiment, but there's still a lot of people who won't hold their feet to the fire and would rather disparage me when I tell the truth about the squad and the Democrats uh, and then still go on to support them and run cover for them and tell people that somehow they're not corrupt. They're 100 percent corrupt. They're not do. They're not uh, representing the people who voted for them. They're not representing their constituents. They're representing their own personal in, uh, careers. And that's called corruption. And there's a lot about people out there who tell you that's not corrupt and that they're, they're lying at, at what to what to protect fucking politicians. And that's not what we do at the Jimmy Dore show. So do I think that you can enter the Democratic Party and reform it? No. And that's why you have to do it from the outside. You know, Ralph Nader, who people blamed for George Bush being elected, so they still hate him. But the funny thing is, they love George Bush now. Why do they love George <laughs> Bush but still hate? They still hate Ralph Nader because Ralph Nader went against the establishment in the system. And they love George Bush because he is the establishment in the system. And he'll tell you to hate Trump voters. Now, in England, you had Brexit. Exit. Now, in the United States, we had Trump's election. Those happened roughly at the same time, and it was dismissed by the neoliberal establishment in both countries as racism. That's the only reason that any of that happened. So, and what's the utility of saying it's racism? The utility is you don't have to look at the real problem, which is neoliberal corporatism, which is crushing workers. That's the real problem. No one wants to look at it. Or how about the fact that uh, NATO keeps bombing the shit out of countries that are oil rich, and uh, that are a problem for Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States. And then those refugees have to flood into other countries. And then you get, so I remember when Trump got first got elected, he put a Muslim ban on Muslims coming to our airports. And the lefties went crazy. How could you do that? And I'm like, they never stopped to ask the question, 
wait a minute, why are there Muslim refugees at our airports? It's because Barack Obama just spent eight years bombing the living shit out of them. That's why they're at. And they're like, oh, okay, we didn't care about that. We only care about the symbol. So they don't care at what's actually happening. Like when Joe, Joe Biden pulled us out of Afghanistan and people were telling me, I bet you thought he would never pull out of Afghanistan. I go, they're not taking that money that they were spending in Afghanistan and they're now going to spend it on schools, books and healthcare and education. No, they're going to take that money. And they're going to put it in the Ukraine. They're going to take that money and they're gonna put it in China. They're going to take that money and put it in Africa. They're not going to stop doing that. America's got over a thousand military bases. Officially, they admit to eight or nine hundred, but there's got to be over a thousand because lots of them are secret. We're the ones doing that. We're the imperialists. It's not Russia. It's not China. China goes in and invests in other people's countries and they make that look like imperialism. So this is the world we're living in, Russell. Uh, uh, left uh, up is down, black is white, and uh, they try to dismiss every problem as racism. They're trying to say these truckers and farmers in Canada who actually have found a way to effectively protest are racist. No matter if you become effective at protesting the establishment, you two things are sure: you're going to be called a racist, and you're going to be called uh, probably a sexist too. Yeah, because I suppose if all you have is aesthetics, then the aesthetics become incredibly important. You have to highlight and uh, glorify these differences. I imagine given the political tradition that you grew up in, that you're extraordinary, sim extraordinarily sympathetic as am I to the rights and um, voices of people that are not from what you would call the majority or dominant culture in any particular nation. More important than that, though, is that these issues are ultimately less important than the points of interface and impact between the neoliberal dominator culture and the majority of ordinary working people that what we have to find are cohesive stories that bring us together it's funny you say that thing about the military bases and everything today after i did that i did a video jimmy after the sort of be appearing on the right wing side of the list there on the joe rogan guest thing and i said like look these are the things i actually believe in these are the things i've made videos about you tell me what term you prefer right wing or left wing then I started to ruminate on like how probably nobody really enjoys paying tax, you know, on the basis of our, you know, whether, who likes losing money or working 50 or 40 percent of the time for nothing. And like, you know, when Julian Assange said about the Afghanistan war, like, you know, he said that the function of government is to take public money and to transfer it into private interests. It made me realize that an economic model where we were aware of where our tax went and indeed were able able to designate where our tax went would be favorable for me it seems that centralization in itself is problematic and that we could have uh, political models that were more representative of the the p potential that technology gives us for more localized democracy i've read elsewhere that you can't overthrow a hegemony without a counter hegemony the argument for communism versus anarchism always being that how can you ever regulate or confront the power of corporatism unless you have a united state but now that we've seen the the corruption that that leads to the um, impotence of the state the willingness of the state to corroborate and cooperate with corporate power i feel that one of the things we should be looking at is localized democracy 
with uh, under a kind of confederacy, which are the kind of words that you hear in American constitutional politics, but somehow don't seem to be enacted. And given that in the answer to my last um, in question, you said you don't believe that the Democratic Party can ever function as a voice for ordinary working people. Do you think then that necessarily we start to have you know because like you know and you may not know this because of you know geography but like in 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 europe there was after 2008 there was a kind of a counter there was a populist leftist movement like podemos came out of spain like was a sort of like a dude off the internet like going to like like going to government got co-opted got centralized there was Syriza in greece yanis varoufakis he's still around the dude that was a, the equivalent of the vice president or the second in command type dude he like went they said that greece said we ain't paying the eu back that money and like and then like the, the lead guy folded and like yes. you know um, but Yanis Varoufakis has stayed with it you know and even Steve Bannon I see Steve Bannon do an address to the Oxford Union it was so dramatic man to watch this guy he turns up like Columbo in a rain mac and several shirts and addresses this hate you can hear the mob outside doom, 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 hating on him and he just comes into the Oxford Union this prestigious sort of um, gothic building in England here and like he goes um, like he just takes off his raincoat and goes um you know, I missed the flight to do this speech, and I'm here to tell you none of you are ever going to own your own home. It's 2000, there you go, it's 2001. Barack Obama makes this decision. He signed, no, 2008. He, Barack Obama, he makes this decision. He signs away this money, the quantity, he, he, he creates this incredible narrative and goes on to say, you know, the future belongs to populism. We're just deciding whether it's going to be right wing populism or left wing populism. At this point, Bernie was still a possibility. At this point, um, you know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn in this country was still a possibility. Um, I suppose what I'm saying is, is that I, like, you know, whether it's like giving people more direct control over the way that their tax dollars are spent, more control over their community, while acknowledging the necessity for some forms of centralized power over municipal projects like roads, hospitals, law enforcement, military, how, you know, I mean, I know there's a lot of balls to keep in the air here, but what it seems to me, what seem to you to be the absolute priorities uh, in creating a new politics, you know, like media control, freedom of speech, allocation of funds, real democracy, waking people up, which is just like, I know this is your bread and butter, you do it every day. What what, what do you, what would be your priorities and would you address some of the things I said like that, that sort of local, like that um, tax autonomy model and stuff? Well, um, let me just say this be before I address your question directly is that, you know, I live in California. Now, California has is the fifth largest economy in the world uh just the state of california and we have a super majority democrats elected in california to run our state legislature super majority meaning republicans can't stop anything the democrats want to do and we also have a democratic governor so the dem if you think the fix to capitalism or oligarchy or to the republicanism or corporatism or to any of the problems in your life is voting harder democrat this should disabuse you of that idea there's people sleeping under every bridge in california we don't have student debt relief we don't have people can't afford to live here uh we have unbelievable income disparity we have a housing crisis and uh, we don't have health care in in california so uh if you think you can vote your way uh, by voting democrat out of any problem you're in that is a that is ridiculous and that's why when people come on your show and say we gotta just vote harder for democrats to fix it 
They don't even believe that. That's just a lie. That's that's no, no one who is a sentient being who's been alive for the last six years. I've been uh, uh, watching politics since 1980. Nobody could believe that. That's just a bullshit. A hundred percent on its face. The people who keep keep telling you to vote for Democrats are people who don't want to actually get outside the the polite society that they circle in. You know, those same the bubbles that they travel in. They want to stay friends with all those people, all those uh, people who are oppressing workers and all that stuff and they don't want to that's what that is about now how can we get more uh uh more control over our government now we i mentioned ralph nader before and i said this before i knew he had said this but in 2015 2016 i was telling people because the democratic party had cheated bernie sanders that's not hyperbole it was proven people had to step down in shame that they were cheating hillary clinton was literally running the democratic national committee during the primary which is you know that's fraud that's unethical fraud and should be criminal so i what i told people is you can't now give your vote to these people so what you have to do is if everybody who voted for Bernie withheld their vote and told pollsters that they're not going to vote for Hillary Clinton, she would be down 10 percent in the polls and she would never have a chance to beat Donald Trump. And so then we would have power and then the Democratic Party would have to come to us because then they can't win an, an election without us. So we would be forcing some kind of an issue there. And so that's what Ralph Nader was saying all the time. We don't have to win an election if we can get 10 percent or 15 percent of the people, 10 million or 15 million people to band together and say we're not voting for you unless you promise us health care we're not voting for you unless you promise to end the wars and invest that money back here we're not voting for you unless you promise to cancel our student debt we're not voting for you unless you promise to give us a living wage uh they can then they would have all that power now it's up to the republicans or the democrats which ones do you want and now to be all out in the open and if neither of them wanted those votes that's when we'd have another trucker uh sit down where they would shut stuff down so this is that that would be that was my big idea russell that you don't need to get enough people in a third party or a major party that could actually win a, a national election you just need to get enough people that are like-minded who are uh willing to not vote for those parties and that's how you influence them and that's how you can have massive so we're not going to get anything in the united states without massive uh public uh displays of protest right direct action so that's what's happening in canada and they don't want to cover that as you mentioned they're not covering it and if they do they cover it in a disparaging way because strikes are catchy when that stuff when, when people see how well that's working how much that has the establishment shitting their pants because they are they have to stop that soon and as soon as if people saw that we could actually take our power back right i i said if everybody who worked at U, uh, uh, ups and amazon just didn't go to work for two days the whole country would stop and so they have to realize their power. But the problem is unions also get corrupted. And so now the major unions aren't really against the oligarchy. They are the oligarchy. So that's why it has to come from the bottom up. It has to come from the grassroots. And uh, as far as the things that you talked about, like more local level participation, where you can see where your tax dollars go. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, that that is the if you could start at a local level, that's always the best. You know, I we we were lobbying here with Ron Placone at up in Pasadena, California. We would go to the city council meetings and and we would uh, uh, lobby our representatives for broadband. Right. Why, why can't we have universal broad, broadband provided by the city and how it would save everybody money and how it actually. And so anyway, uh, I'm with you on that. I, I, I don't I need more ideas that way. Uh, I'm not, you know, I haven't looked into it probably as much as you have, but, uh, yeah, I'm all for that. Hey, so how did you like, 
there's a few more. I mean, I've got questions to fill the entire hour of content. You'll be astonished to learn I'm a professional <laughs> person. But Jimmy, I want to know, like a little bit more um, biographically, like how did you come to cultivate this perspective? How do you manage the um, tension between being an entertainer and uh, and an you know an activist, obviously explicitly and in, in, in a pretty dedicated way? That's what you are. How do you manage that? Uh, uh, that tension how did you get how did you cultivate these views and uh yeah that's enough to start with isn't it well you know i grew up uh, poor i grew up one of 12 kids my dad was a cop and he worked two jobs and the second job was working bricks through bricklaying and then i had to do that with him so i worked with my hands i grew up poor i drank powdered milk until i was in sixth grade and stuff like that and i saw that the people who worked the hardest uh, didn't make the most money and that the rich people didn't really work harder. They made most of the money and everybody I knew was working their ass off and they were struggling even back then. And so now things are way, way worse. So that's really shaped my and my views on things, but also the Bill Clinton presidency in the 90s, because we were always told, you know, you got to vote Democrat. That's the lesser of two evil. Turns out Bill Clinton was the greater evil. And that's just not me saying that. Right. That's uh, uh, in the book. Listen, liberal by uh, no, I can't remember his name. Um, Frank. Thomas Frank. Uh, he said that also. It's like you think you're voting. But if you look at it, uh, Bill Clinton was able to do things negative towards workers that George Bush, who he beat, his, George Bush the first in the election, couldn't. Like George Bush the first tried to pass this thing called NAFTA. NAFTA was this, you know, uh, economic agreement between Mexico, Canada, and the United States, which screwed workers and unions, right? So that was so Bill, George Bush the first couldn't pass that. Bill Clinton got in and he gave cover to the right wing conservative Democrats, the corporatists, to go ahead and pass that. And so that was that, that. So there's an evil that Republicans couldn't get done. Democrats came in and we got it done. So or they got it done. Uh, and so that was a big. So when I saw Bill Clinton do that, he deregulated Wall Street. He cut welfare. He exploded the prison population while demonizing poor black people while passing NAFTA, which cut the legs out from underneath workers. That was a Democrat. That's when I knew that the Democrats are no friend to the working man. And then when I saw what Barack Obama did, I knew for sure what they're doing is they're trying to find a friendly face for corporatism. And I told people Donald Trump is going to put an ugly face on the stuff that Democrats have been doing all along. And he sure did. That was exactly a fact. So when Donald Trump became president, local municipalities stopped working with his uh, deportation ICE, which is what they're called, the uh, uh, the enforcement of deporting uh, immigrants. And so he wasn't able to deport that many. So he put the ugly face on the horrible stuff that we were doing. Now they got Joe Biden, who's demented and uh, he's not threatening to anybody. So he'll never tweet anything mean. So they think that's all they have to do. But people are catching on that. They've been fed a, a, bill, a bill of goods by this guy who's demented, uh, just like they've been fed a bill of goods over covid and the suppression of early treatments. Wow. Cool. How what do you do about this? How do you manage the stand up activism oh. tension? Is there is is that a thing for you? So I got so the way so you know they tell you don't. I've been to comedy clubs, and they were like, hey, don't talk about this, don't talk about that. And of course, that's the first thing I'm going to talk about. And so I've had that problem, but uh, in 2008 or maybe 2006, the UCB Theater opened in Los Angeles, and they asked me to do a show. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd only done stand up. And so I decided to just do a show about the news because I'd been watching the news a lot and I couldn't believe the stuff that I was seeing and how many lies they tell at and what speed. 
And so that kind of started, I started doing this show about politics. And then I got an hour special on Comedy Central called Citizen Jimmy. And I talked about all the stuff they tell you not to talk about in, in comedy clubs because you're going to split the room. You're going to divide the room. And I talked about all of it, but I did it in a way that was inclusive. I didn't do I it was us against them, not me against half the country. I did it in a way that was inclusive and it was very popular special. And it even was chosen best of the year by iTunes, which is if I tell, if I don't tell you that, nobody will. That's why I have to tell you. And uh, so that actually gave me the and then I got a radio show from KPFK, which is a lefty uh, public radio station here in Los Angeles. So I was encouraged to go against the establishment and the status quo. I was getting by the establishment. They were rewarding me with things like every time I went against it, I won. And then I started doing uh, uh, news on YouTube and. Again, it's so much easier to do a better job than the establishment news. But I've lost a lot of friends in show business because of my politics, because I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton and I wouldn't vote for Joe Biden. I'm done voting for corporatist warmongers. And when I did that, they started, to, you know, I'm the I'm their enemy. And because that's how that's how narrow their thinking is. They can't understand that, though, no, you're just choosing an, another evil. You're not choosing a better evil or a lesser evil. You're choosing another evil. In fact, a lot of people say it's a worse evil because they could the Democrats could pull off more evil than the Republicans can because they put a pretty face on their evil. So uh, that's where I'm at. Uh, I'm not going to participate. I'm not ever voting for another corporatist warmonger. I don't care how big of a boogeyman they put up against them. So that's kind of where my politics comes from. Uh, I've always been lefty, always been working. It's always been us against them. It's always I keep my eye on the establishment. I keep my eye on the oligarchy and I don't get distracted uh, by trying to hate on my neighbor. Do you think this comes from, yeah, it's interesting that your father's a cop and like uh, there's a point <laughs> where that, you know, that was regarded and in my view or be still as a, com a community driven um, vocation, you know, that people that work in the police force are members of that community. Tell, check this, Jimmy. One time I was, uh, when I was, I used to hang with, pro like, like go to protests and all that. A lot of it was, I was still crazy. I was still a junkie. And I like, um, I enjoyed the chaos. Well, the first one I went to was an accident. The Liverpool Dockers Union were protested in Trafalgar Square because I don't know, they were getting screwed over. I don't know. I just like came out of the tube station and they were throwing like paving stones and there was horses running around in the street, you know, because it was a mounted police force and stuff. I was like, whoa, I like this. You know, I just liked the chaos of it. Then I learned a little bit about what the Liverpool Dockers struggle was actually, you know, about. And it's obviously the kind of things that you've already talked about. And then I started to get involved in like, you know, just attending things like Reclaim the Streets, which were more sort of anarchist type movements that were pretty serious and could be pretty destructive. And there were a lot of famous protests in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s before I got clean from drugs and suddenly before I became a celebrated television comedian that I was at. One time I remember being right up at the front line against the plastic shields and I heard the accents of the men primarily behind the shields, you know, and uh, the people that were there protesting and throwing the blocks. And I noticed that the police all had accents that were like mine and were from places like Essex and Kent and like the suburbs of London 
where I'm from, where I grew up in a single parent family. And a lot of the people that are <laughs> throwing the blocks and stuff, not all, but were people that come from universities and higher education and that kind of stuff. Now, you know, no discrimination at all. Everybody should be, you know, we should all be rowing in the same direction. But I started to feel, I oh, like the police force, them ordinary working people, you know, like because I was, you know, a default criminal by virtue of the drug addiction and the way that drugs are necessarily acquired. Like, um, you know, I grew up with that kind of slightly anti-police type stance. But as I've grown, I've realized that there could be no populist political movement with any chance of success without the full cooperation of the police force and the military is absolutely impossible. And plus, the vast majority of people, my assumption would be, are drawn to those vocations by a desire to serve and a willingness to self-sacrifice. And these are people that you don't want to see maligned. These are people that you want to see celebrated, brought into the fold, along with nurses, health professionals, the people that are working. I've got like people that I went to school with um, are in the fire service. Now, I know that don't bring up the same sort of tension because it's not law enforcement, it's rescuing. And of course, in your country, you've got the 9-11 semiotics around that stuff. And like I did some stuff for their unions and all of that. And I feel like that these are the people, these are the people that we've got a kind of appeal to and stuff. So I guess I wonder how much like growing up in a household with a police officer that's having to work a second job, laying the bricks and whatnot, uh, is the, the, the personal of the experience of the political. How much of that is still in you? How much of that is in your blood and in your understanding of the way, what, you know, even ideas of what is right, what is right, you know? Well, I, you know, I've... Uh... So during the Black Lives Matter protests in, was that 20, 2020, right? Uh, or 21? I don't know. I don't even remember now when they were. But um, I think it was 2020. Uh, there was lots of police brutality. There's lots of police brutality in the United States. And it's the way we run our policing, right? It's systemic. And what happens with cops is it, 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 when you join the force, you either succumb to the culture or you get kicked out. And that's what we found out. Right. So it's a culture. It's it's a systemic problem in the United States from coast to coast as far as policing. So I've spoken out very harshly against policing and police. And, um, you know, I've come from a long line of cops. My grandfather was a cop. My dad was a cop. My oldest brother was a cop. And so um, a lot of my best friends in Chicago were all cops. Right. Went to their weddings, stuff like that. And so I, I know uh, who cops are. And uh, so they're very nice to me individually. But uh, as a uh, as a culture, they're corrupt. And, <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, yeah, you're, you make a good point that these, you know, policemen are working, working class, but often they don't police the, uh, communities they grew up in. Just like you were mentioning, like in Los Angeles, the, the cop in Chicago, one of the great things about when I grew up, if you were a city worker, you had to live in the city. You couldn't live outside because the idea was they didn't want to give tax dollars to a worker who was going to go spend it outside in another community. So if you were a cop or a fireman or a city worker, you had to live inside the city. That was really more about political control uh, for the mayor. Right. So that was making sure that uh, we kept segregated communities and that the African community didn't overtake the city that's really what that was about uh but right now i'm living in a city where people live uh 30 miles away from where they go police and so when you if you don't live in the community you're policing you're becoming an occupying force and you see those people as your enemy instead of the people you're supposed to serve and you know i mean look at the movies that i mean i grew up watching new jack city and all those movies you know boys in the hood and all so you'd see it it's revealed and 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 plus i saw it as a kid growing up so um 
yeah, I think what 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 we have to do is is convince the police and people in the military that 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 they're with us, that their their interests are our interests and our interests are their interests. But of course, you know, I mean, cops aren't really there to protect workers. They're there to protect the oligarchs and their property. And people forget that. So we have to keep that in mind, you know. And as soon as the cops in Canada started to defect and started to help those truckers and those farmers who were protesting, you saw the chief of police of Ottawa come out and he was panicked that we got to stop this now. And he avowed to use the full extent of the law against these cops who were helping them. So that means that there are already cops helping them and they got scared. And so that's exactly what you're right, exactly what we need to do. We can't have a revolution until we convince those people that they're, well, I, you know what? I don't know about that, actually. I mean, that would help if we could convince them. But if we showed up and like the truckers are showing up, we're going to win. Uh, that's just a fact. So we got to convince people that they have the power to occupy and show up. And that's what scares them. And the problem with Occupy Wall Street was they occupied Wall Street instead of occupying Washington, D.C. Hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting, that observation. Clearly, though, with that those um, movements, as well as perhaps the sort of the 60s counterculture and how it mutated into the individualism of the 80s, is there's two things I want to bring up. They're both pretty bloody major. One is a lack of a coherent ideology that's ready to be mapped onto what currently exists. Two is people sort of just, you know, Mark Fisher, who's a very influential British writer, he took his own life. And like he wrote in his book, Late Capitalism, he used that phrase, which I think someone else coined, that is, you know, it's easier to envisage the end of the world than it is to envisage the end of capitalism, that we cannot even conceive of it, that it's, it's a, such a deep and entrenched fundamentalism that we don't really know how to, like, you know, and even I start to, when I hear you sort of say about, like, you know, revolution and, like, you know, they, even when you use the lexicon of the traditional left of workers and unions, like, I start to feel those uh, hegemonic uh, arguments, especially now I'm right wing, rise up in me of like, um, yeah, but, you know, we all saw what happened in the Soviet Union and we all saw what happened in China. And, and like, so there's two things I feel like, you know, and this was actually pointed out to me by Adam Curtis, who if you haven't had him on your, any of your shows yet, you should get him on. He's a British filmmaker who made some brilliant films called Century of the Self, Power of Nightmares, Bitter Lake about the, the uh, Afghan war. He's a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker and storyteller who uses archive to I illustrate narratives, so, 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 which are highly authored, but brilliant, brilliant. You would love him. Anyway, he, um, he's the first person that pointed out to me the, that they are left at, uh, at abandoned working people and he sort of showed me what the lineage of that was and it was Adam Curtis too that said that the problem with Occupy Wall Street is like you know after even they had that amazing cat night you know 99 you know the one percent they had some brilliant ideas but they were unable to sort of mobilize and of course you know there's no there's no condemnation of them the, the revolution is ongoing it's an ongoing process he also talked about the Arab Spring that like when there are these uprisings if there isn't a coherent ideology to um to be you know mapped onto the pre-existing heterodoxy then what tends to happen is someone like you know the islamic brotherhood in the case of egypt are able to sort of come along and go well we've actually got some pretty clear written down ideas that we will be deploying so uh, and, and and this is sort of tangentially connected to this i call it an ancillary inquiry it's my belief that like um uh, sort of uh, the communist critique suffers somewhat because it necessarily had to replace religious ideologies because of the sort of historic context in which it arose 
so it's sort of materialistic in its own way a mate of mine said like that the problem with communism is it places economics absolutely at the heart of all ideological arguments when really what you and I are talking about are things like fairness justice love unity fraternity serenity togetherness how do we evoke and uh, embody and <clears throat> energize and activate a spiritual dimension to um, this movement without it sounding woo woo or airy fairy and crap Boy, if you could pull that off, you'd be a great leader, right? I mean, I, that, I'm out of idea. You know, I talk a little bit about uh, spirituality, too, on my show, uh, which also annoys me that you do it better than me. So Thank you for saying that. Um, there are many, many things that you do better than me. I've been listening to you do them in this podcast. So, um, you know, I talk a lot about the collective unconscious, which Carl Jung call, talked about also. And that's why, you know, he caught a lot of heat because he said that whatever bothers you in another person is happening inside your unconscious. That's why you have an emotional reaction to it and that you have to be able to realize that you're capable, uh, you're on your dark side, your shadow, you have one and that is a capable of horrible things. And once you do that, you don't have to act on them. Once you acknowledge that, you don't have to act on them. And then when you see them in other people, you see yourself. And so then you don't hate them, you know? And so then it's harder to divide you. So I don't know how you pull that off, how you get people to realize that, that we're actor actually are one, that, that uh, you know, if I just watched The Matrix last night, in fact. And so, you, you know, it's an illusion. The first what one. We're living. No, I watched the I watched all of them, and last night I watched the last one, which is my least favorite. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the first one was the best. So for my for my take, anyway, that what that really explained everything. Uh, that you're I couldn't living, believe you're I living... was watching it when I saw that film. It changed my dress code. I, I changed overnight. <laughs> I thought, how could like how could that film be made? How can Hollywood? Like, there's films I sometimes think, how can they make this film? Like like that. Like, even the Lego Movie. I think, how can they just put that out that basically tells you, hey, your whole reality is constructed and curated. You're denied any opportunity to freely express yourself. You're dominated by these corporate forces. There are some external <laughs> forces that dominate all of that. Or the Matrix with your battery and your energy's being drained and. The the only way is to drag that fucking thing out the back of your head. You know, like, how could this movie be made? And we just watch it and then go home and carry on and get back in the battery cell. You know, the interesting thing for my part, when I saw that movie, I couldn't believe it. And I wanted to drag people to see it. And so one of the guys I brought to see that movie was at the time a fellow comedian. We were friends and he had he was a right winger. And I was like, I wonder how he's going to react to this movie. And so we went to, I took him to see The Matrix and he didn't say a word the whole movie. I'm like, ah, he's hating it. And then after the movie was over, he turned to me and he said, this is too important to be a movie. <laughs> and I was like, wow. So there's some real connection, right? That, so I, and that opened his eyes to a lot of things. And uh, we actually are, so that's the thing. Those aren't just words. We actually are one. This is where we are. So I heard a, um, uh, a quantum physicist talk about the energy and how how we are all connected. And he said, you know, when you're riding in an airplane and you look out the window and you're over an ocean, you see those white ripples and you know that that is the crest of a wave. You can't see the wave. You just see the big ocean but you can't see the wave. but you do see those white lines, but you know that those white lines are coming from a wave. 
even though you can't see them. Well, that's he said that's the same way with everything you see in reality. We are an energy wave. We are the crest. Everything you see is the crest of this energy wave, but you just can't see the wave or the ocean. And every wave is connected to the ocean. It's not separate. There's no drop of water in the ocean that's separate from the ocean, just like we're not separate from each other. We're not separate from the crest of this wave of this energy that we're riding right now. So we actually, so that's, uh, I don't know how you, uh, so how do you live that, right? And so I think Carl Jung came along with the way to help us live that, understand that we do have a collective unconscious. Joseph Campbell also helped teach us that. But uh, I don't know how you get people, you know, once once you convince people that your neighbor's interests are your interests, uh, that I think that will go a long way. Yes, love thy neighbor. <laughs> like it's in yeah. the actual Bible. I'm like, uh, what comedians are you into? Are you into Bill Hicks and Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and Pryor? What, what? So I love that. You know, of course, the people who got me uh, started was you know George Carlin. I remember when he talked about uh, the seven words you can't say on TV, and when he talked about catholic school and i just couldn't stop i mean it just blew my mind like there's there's an adult who gets it it just and so that was a big thing for me the jerry seinfeld i loved also brian regan and then uh when i saw bill hicks it almost ruined me uh, i'll never forget the first time I, I had heard about this guy bill hicks you got to see this guy bill hicks you know so i was in comedy maybe three years at the time and uh, i thought i was i pretty much had it figured out i knew what i was doing <laughs> that's what i thought i was very cocky and so I went to see Bill Hicks and he's 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 on stage for like five minutes. And I started feeling horrible about myself. And 10 minutes in, I started drinking <laughs> and and 15 minutes in, I was sure I was never going to do comedy again because he was so much better than anything. Like I had looked at I just looked at George Carlin, who was great and amazing. I like if I did everything right, if I watched my P's and Q's and dotted my I's and crossed my T's and did everything right, I could maybe have a special that's like that. But when I saw Bill Hicks, I knew I would forever be fighting for second place. And it just kind of crushed me. And then a few years later, he died. So I was like, oh, thank God. Oh, what a relief. And so I have a chance. Yes, I was like, oh, I have a chance again. But no, it was it was the weird thing, too, because I, when he died, I was the first time someone I didn't know personally died that I felt bad. I felt like we had a we lost something like and we and boy, have we. Boy, could I, can you imagine if we had Bill Hicks today? It was anyway, it just so that was big influence for me. Uh, and then, you know, and in the modern era, there's so many great comedians. I would be ridiculous to even mention them besides Brian Regan, who's the greatest. Oh, well, I have to learn more about him. With Bill, with Bill, what uh, you see that thing that you feel like is beyond emulation. What do you think it was? Do you think it was the ability to sort of drop into character? That sort of weird shamanic thing he could do? Goat boy stuff, the like the sort of weird voices, the sort of transmission of intensity that sort of had that, you know, fiery Texas shit in it. So he somehow was able to take uh, a larger view of everything. So he was like on another plane overlooking what we were doing. That's how it felt to me anyway. And so he had a he had a, a, a greater perspective than everybody. And then he coupled it with uh, an amazing ability to mimic pantomime uh deliver jokes uh to do sound effects even 
he had this he he had it at all he he was an amazing performer on top of his insight and his philosophy that he injected into his comedy and he had also this rage uh that i connected with uh i also have a lot a lot of anger and rage that i grew up with and uh you know you and that was another thing i was always told to hide that uh, comedically and as an entertainer, like you can't go on stage because I tried to be like Bill Hicks. Of course I did. And I got my ass handed to me very quickly. And uh, my I remember my girlfriend told me that, Jimmy, you don't look like you come from a blue collar for like when I would get on stage because I grew up poor. I would always try to be very coiffed and very well dressed. And, you know, I had to wear hand me downs until I got out of high school. So what as soon as I could dress nice, I tried to and I tried to present myself. And they said, you can't go on stage and yell at people if you look like you come from privilege and you look like and I'm like, oh, OK, I got it. I got it. So I had to soften my tone and everything. So if you look at my 2008 special, it was much softer than the person I am now. But it wasn't until I started working at the Young Turks and I saw Jenk Uger screaming at the top of his head almost every show. And I was like, you can do that. I was told you can't do that. And so but I go, if he can do that and he's popular, I know I can do that. And so I started doing it and I was just speaking freely from the heart and letting my emotions take me wherever it went. And people connected with it and people would come up to me uh, for two years and they would after the 2016 election and say, Jimmy, you kept me sane. And I didn't know what they meant at the time, but now I do. What they were meaning was, Jimmy, you were expressing outwardly what I was feeling inwardly. So they were feeling rage at the system and what was happening and at their politicians selling them out and the establishment squashing everyone and nobody speaking up for them or anybody telling the truth in any of the media. And when they and they felt like that and they would look around in the world and nobody else seemed to be as upset as they were. So they thought they were crazy. But then when they saw me come on TV and I said it, then they realized that they weren't crazy, that there were a lot of people who think like me. And that's also what Jomsky taught us. And that that's the point of the establishment corporate media is to make you feel isolated it's to make you think that the thoughts you're thinking you're the only one having those thoughts that i should have a living wage i should have student free college i should have health care we should end these wars they don't want you to think that and that so that's what the establishment media is there to do and that's why they would never give me a guy like me a platform saying the things i'm saying which is why i have to go on youtube rumble and rockfin and because the, the establishment isn't going to endorse this right and so in fact they're suppressing us right now and they're trying to get rid of us for telling the truth not for lying so again i forgot what the point of the question is but that's where i'm at oh no that's cool man i like it made me feel like, like sort of in a sense bill your lover bill hicks became sort of a, an agent or as, as well as um chenk bear of your self-realization and self-actualization and you also gave me a valuable reminder because hubristic man that i can be i sometimes forget that our function is to channel what we know to be the common experience and not to fall into the trap which i've fallen into so many times of thinking this is me i am this thing i fall into it all the time you know i have to remember like because what i had this big moment that we won't know about because it would be irrelevant to an american where like um like i am um, in po british politics right i started talking about politics a lot and said there's no point voting whoever you vote for you'll get the same result right i said that and i got, got a lot of blowback and then i went on this big sort of news show with it was like our equivalent of something like 60 minutes where the anchors are like a right hard ass this guy jeremy paxman and my reason i love mark fisher who wrote that book late capitalism is because like oh, when i had this conversation 
conversation with Jeremy Paxman, I goes to him, you're right, I see you all the time on the television with these politicians and you saying to them, answer the question properly, you're lying, you're prevaricating, tell us the truth. And then when I come in here and tell you that it's pointless, you hit on me. Like, so like, and, and like this thing went all viral, it's like 10 years ago or whatever. And anyway, like, so my little channel started to be popular and successful and I ended up, I think somewhat because maybe it was around the time that Obama maybe went on Mark Marin. Like I, like the leader of the opposition came around my house to do an interview on YouTube. They lost that election pretty badly. It was the leader of the centre-left party. They were a night wiped out in that election, perhaps because of doing that interview with me. And like, I remember there started to be points where I started to think, I am the vessel of this truth. Instead of remembering, no, you're just saying things that people feel. You're just saying things that people feel. Just keep doing that. Don't get caught up in your inner traps. And this is where I see this go, you know, when you talk about an, archety uh, an archetypal underlying unifying consciousness of which we are all expressions, individual waves of that whole ocean is to recognize for me, I'm speaking for myself, like what my job is. My job is to do my best to speak the truth and recognize that I am capable of corruption, that I am capable of vanity, that I am capable of self-centeredness. And as long as I manage that, then I won't go through my life projecting that on other people because I'll be able to, I, I own my shadow. I'll own my shadow. That and is correct. I mean, I'd, I'd say I say it all the time that, uh, you know, when I'm calling out the corruption in the media, which is what I really like to do, uh, and, I, you know, I point to Rachel Maddow, who gets paid fifty or $60,000 a day, a day to manufacture consent, and I say, you know, and I'm no better than her. Uh, it's just nobody has made an offer. As soon as <laughs> someone makes an offer, I'll take it, but no one's offering. So that's what I always like to say, because I don't want to pretend that I'm as soon as you do that, as soon as you say that I'm a better person, I'm more pompous. I'm you, that's just again, that's that's that doesn't help you. That only can that can only help destroy you. Our job then is to remain humble, to remain grounded, to remain open and honest and keep communicating. Jimmy, thanks so much for coming on here. And uh, there were so many things you said that are just uh, beautiful. I'm really excited to share this with people. I'm, I took a photo. I don't know if you noticed earlier of the screenshot. I'm sure people will be, I hope that people will be excited to see that on um, on YouTube where we do a lot of our work. And perhaps me and you will stay in touch so we can talk about what, if any, future collaborations we can do. I would love to. That's great. I just want to say a big thanks for having me on your show and exposing me to your audience. I really appreciate you doing that. You have a huge audience and your show is amazing. So it's just I'm 100 percent filled with jealousy. <laughs> Thank you for owning that part of the shadow. I can't wait to come to the UK. I know we have fans over there. Yeah, and as soon, yeah. as, this COVID, as soon as COVID is over, I'm going to come and do a tour. It's been a real uh, pleasure to talk to you. I'm really flattered that you invited me on your show. Thanks, Jimmy. OK. See you, man. All right, Russell. Thank you, pal. Well, that was Jimmy Dore. I hope you enjoyed that. Let me know what you thought of it um, on Twitter, at, using at Rusty Rockets. That's why I call myself there. Everywhere else, Instagram, TikTok, all those things. I'm at Russell Brand. We can communicate or you can send me an email um, uh, at help. No, help at russellbrand.com. That's if you need help. Or hello at russellbrand.com. That's just if you want to say hello to me or if you want to comment on the show or whatever. Keep watching the YouTube stuff. Remember, come and see me live in Scarborough, Sheffield. I'm all over Yorkshire and Lancashire. I'm in Glasgow soon, Plymouth. And at Bristol Ashton Gate, that's going to be another outdoor extravaganza that's coming up in April. Make a point of travelling around the world with me. Let's, uh, let's start building this movement properly. Also, you should be listening to Above the Noise and Meditating. I just did a nice one on, uh, you know envisaging world peace and inner peace simultaneously you can get that on the same site you're on right now luminary and if you enjoyed this conversation why don't you listen to bill burr why 
Comedian. <laughs> comedian. Uh, interesting comedian on interesting topics. Crystal ball. <laughs> Mentioned in the podcast. Brilliant. Yeah, and then you can sort of follow a little line of inquiry. Keep checking out my YouTube channels every day for new videos. And thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. <laughs>